Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark is an interesting book. It is not written by you, but uh, um, it is a uh, fascinating look at the life of Jesus Christ, and it gets off to a rip-roaring start. It starts right off with Jesus about 30 years old, and it tells the story of his forerunner, the man who came before him, John the Baptist. And John was out in the wilderness, and he was baptizing people. That's how he got his name, John the Baptist, the guy who baptizes uh, he wasn't a Baptist, as in like Baptist preacher, how we think of Baptist. He was a Jewish man who uh, baptized people, asking them to forgive or, or confess their sins and repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he was the forerunner that Isaiah spoke of, according to Mark chapter 1. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he is baptized by John the baptizer. And John is his cousin and John baptizes him. And as Jesus emerges from the waters of baptism, it says that the spirit of God came down upon Jesus like a dove. And it said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's how Mark begins his gospel. And then the interesting thing is Jesus starts to wander around Israel. He starts to wander around the countryside. He goes to Capernaum, which is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's kind of Jesus' headquarters for a while. It, it's probably even his hometown where he grew up. And Jesus is in Capernaum, and there he calls his first disciples. He calls these men Simon and James and John, a different John than John the baptizer. And these men are, are fishing. I was going to say surfing, but you can't really surf on the Sea of Galilee. They're fishing. That's their occupation. And Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And Jesus starts to say things that cause people to scratch their heads. He starts to do things that are amazing. He actually uh, heals a man of an evil spirit. He exercises a demon from a person. And then he heals a leper. He causes a leper to be clean. He heals many people. It says that the, the crowd started showing up and they were pressing upon Jesus so that they might just even touch him to be healed. What do you think would be the response today if people were to hear that there was a man in Yuma County who could heal people if you just got near enough to touch him? My guess is it would be much like the first century. My guess is that person would have all sorts of crowds gathering around him in a desperate attempt to be healed to be healed of terminal cancers, to, to be healed of, of blindness, to be healed of uh, ongoing diseases that they have befuddled and caused the doctors and nurses to just scratch their heads. My guess is that person would elicit a major response even in our day and age. And back then, even greater, even greater would the attraction to a person who could heal people be? So a crowd gathers around Jesus and they start to follow him around. And, and Mark even tells us they're coming from all over. They're coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from the southern region of Israel. And a vast crowd of people is gathering around Jesus. And the movement's just begun. 
He actually tells us the names of the disciples, 12 men that Jesus calls to himself and he makes them apostles and he sends them out. He sends them out to preach. He gives them power to heal and to drive out demons in his name. And we're only in the second chapter of Mark. If you like fast paced Bible stories, Mark's your book. If you want to just, you know, read and get it over with, Mark's your book. If you want to find out quickly what Jesus' adult life was like, Mark is your book. It's interesting because Jesus also starts to do things that make authorities, the Jewish leaders, mad in chapter 2. I mean, right away, we start to see that they are, they are upset with Jesus because he is intentionally breaking Jewish religious rules. If you like rebels, Mark's your book. If you like folks who like to go against the flow, who like to subvert the dominant paradigm, if you like a guy who's a rebel and a revolutionary, Mark is your book. And right away, at the end of chapter 2, it tells us that they are looking for a way to kill Jesus. Very different than how most people picture Jesus. Most people think of Jesus as meek and mild and a guy who hangs out with lambs. A guy who is um, a wise sage, a gifted teacher who is a loving, gentle man. And, and, And clearly that's part of who he is. But when you read Mark, the first few chapters, that's not the picture you get. You get a picture of a man who's on a mission, who is running headlong into a showdown with the Jewish leaders, with the Roman leaders. You get a man who is on a mission and seems to know that there is something about his life that he is supposed to do and to be. You also get a man who's greatly misunderstood. You see, in that day and age, there were a bunch of theories about the Messiah And if you remember, as we've looked at Mary, she has been told by the angel Gabriel that her son, Jesus, is the Messiah. Messiah is the Jewish word for the anointed one, the king. And she has been told by the the angel Gabriel that her son is the king of the Jews, the promised king of the Jews. Imagine the expectation she must have. In fact... We don't have to imagine. We know. We can look at the ancient Jewish writings from that time period. And we know what they thought the Messiah would be like. We know what they thought the Messiah would do. They thought the Messiah would be like Moses. Like a prophet like Moses. Who would call his people to obedience to the Torah. To the law of God found in the Old Testament. They believed that he'd be greater than Moses and that he would lead his people, Israel, out of bondage and captivity like Moses did from Egypt. But this time it'd be from the Romans. Uh, They also believed that the Messiah would be greater than the prophets of old, that he would speak forth the word of God with authority, that his voice would thunder and it would be poetic and beautiful and awe-inspiring. They also believe that he'd be like David, 
That he'd come as a king who would conquer and rout the enemies of Israel. And he would sit upon a throne after establishing the shalom, the peace of Israel. And they also believed that he would be like Solomon. That he would bring the world and his people wisdom and prosperity like Israel experienced under King Solomon. Those four expectations were on the Messiah. And no doubt, Mary shared these expectations. Causes me to think, what expectations do we have on Jesus today? What kind of of ideas do we think that Jesus must live up to? Or expectations that we think God should do this and Jesus should do that? Because we'll see that it appears that Jesus is reading a different Bible. And it feels like Jesus has a different script For his life than what the Jews had. And even what his mother's script for his life must have looked like. We see that in this passage in Mark chapter 3 that we're going to consider today. Starting in verse 20. That there are two theories that have emerged about Jesus. There are two theories that have emerged about Jesus. And these theories still exist to this very day. But we're also going to see that Jesus tells us who he is. You see, there's this clashing scripts. The, the Messiah-like ways that Jesus is acting is that he is exercising demons. He's healing the sick. He's restoring lepers. He even forgave a paralyzed man his sins. And he told that paralyzed man to get up and walk. He attracted a crowd very much like the Messiah and what they expected. But he's acting in ways that are not Messiah-like. One way that he's acting that is surprising to them is he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. When you hear tax collectors and sinners, uh, you need to keep in mind that there were people in their day and age, just like there are folks in our day and age who were on-purpose sinners. You know on-purpose sinners, right? If you're at church, you're probably not, in your mind, an on-purpose sinner. That's why you go to church. You come to church, you dress up, you take a shower, you shave, you, you show up, and you're putting your best foot forward. You're not an on-purpose sinner. But the on-purpose sinners are the folks who don't bother coming to church. They're the ones who are out doing whatever they want to do, and they are just telling you and I, I don't care. Who are you to judge me? I'll do whatever I want to do. And they continue in that vein, and they're on-purpose sinners. Now, don't think that I don't believe that all of us are on-purpose sinners. We just purposefully hide it, don't we? I mean, there's a great overlap between the on-purpose sinners, those who just don't care and are unrepentant, and those who show up on Sunday morning and, and try to repent. Jesus was hanging out with the on-purpose sinners. These are the people who, who did not follow the religious rules of Israel. These were the people who did not bother to go to temple. These were the people who said, ah, God could care less about me anyway, so I might as well do whatever I want. These are the people who said, if I went to temple, the temple would fall down and kill everybody in it because uh, I never go to temple. These are the folks who just on purpose broke the laws of God and of Israel. And Jesus, in a very un-Messiah-like way, at least how they didn't expect, spent time, hung out with 
the tax collectors and the sinners. They thought that the Messiah would come and that those would be the people that first, you know, got the backhand of God. They thought that those would be the people that he would not mix it up with, but he'd mix them up. Those were the people. And don't we have those same people in our minds? Don't we have those same people in our minds who th- we think, oh, there's no way God could love them. We call them by different names. We don't call them tax collectors and sinners. Uh, we call them Muslims. We call them other names. But Jesus is showing a very different script for the Messiah. And it gets him into trouble. In fact, he's intentionally breaking Jewish rules. Jewish laws. He actually tells the disciples not to fast. And good Jews fasted twice a week. And he says, don't bother fasting. Because the bridegroom's here. The party is on. Don't fast. You fast when you're waiting for the party. But the party's here. He also intentionally had them break the rule of Sabbath. They, they were walking through a field and... Mark tells us this. They took grain because they were hungry and they uh, rubbed it between their hands and they ate some of the grain. And that was work back then. And that was unclean. It was a sin. And Jesus claimed, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And he's hearkening back to Genesis where he says, I was there when the Sabbath was created. I'm Lord of it. And you can see why the Jewish leaders are starting to get upset with the guy to the point that they want him killed. He's done these things where on one hand he looks like the Messiah, but on the other hand it's like, what? He's healing people. He's hanging out with sinners. He's attracting a crowd. He's breaking the rules. And I bet his poor mom is befuddled. Moms, dads, when you see your kids spending time with kids that you go, oh, that kid's an on-purpose sinner. That kid is not a person that I want influencing my child. And I don't care how old your kid is. Jesus is probably 30 here. And I'm sure Mary is thinking, oh, my. I thought we raised him right. I thought we told him. Didn't we avoid all those people all this time? Has he been secretly sneaking off? Did I not know things? Are there things I missed? And Jesus is confusing his mom. He's confusing a lot of people. And so two theories about who Jesus is emerge and we see them in this passage. The first theory is he's a lunatic. The second theory is he's a liar. In fact, you see it in this passage where it says, uh, Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. <laughs> There's no elbow room. It's like you can't even reach your food, I guess. You know, Golly, these people, I can't even get the bread. In fact, it says they couldn't even eat a loaf of bread. That would have, that would have been the, the actual translation of this. It's like you can't even move around. You're just like sardines in this place. It's such a pressing group of people that have been attracted to the Messiah. And when his family heard about this, <laughs> your family ever hear anything about you that would rather your family not hear? 
They went to take charge of him. Um, I love that phrase. They went to take charge of him, which is, it's like they went to bind him, grab him and arrest him. They went to like handcuff the kid and drag him home. Dad, you ever felt like doing that to your kids sometime? They wanted to just bind the kid and you're coming with me. In fact, we sell leashes nowadays for kids. I find that amazing. We probably don't call it that, but um, it's pretty much a leash, right? They didn't have those when we had kids, but we would have had three of those when they were younger. Now, they went, I'll just stop there. Sometimes the filter kicks in. It's pretty cool. When, they heard, when, when the family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. How many times have I heard that from myself? He's out of his mind. What is she doing? She's out of her mind. And here the family is thinking, he's out of his mind. He's spending time with tax collectors and sinners. We raised him better. He he is intentionally breaking the rules. We raised him better. He is making people angry. He, He must be out of his mind. So they go to get him. They go to restrain Jesus. Well, let's see what the other theory is. The lunatic theory is coming from the family. And some of us have been subject to that. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is uh, Satan. Another word for Satan, for the adversary, for the devil. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And so the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't think he's a lunatic because they can't deny the miracles they, he's been doing. They focus on the miracles. They focus on the power. They focus on the crowd. And they think, he's got some power. He's doing amazing things. There's two options. God or the devil. Let's pick the devil. Because we don't like what he's doing. And we're on God's side. So it must be the other side. So they say that Jesus is a liar. They say that Jesus is lying about who he really is. That he's not the Messiah. That he is sent to deceive Israel. And he's working all these miracles and he's working all these signs. But it's a deception. He's a liar. He's evil. You know, these views of Jesus still exist today. But we've actually, uh, we've actually came up with a fourth in our culture. The interesting thing is there's only three theories put forth in the Bible. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's the options that are in the Bible. He's either out of his mind crazy, he's either on purpose deceiving people and evil, or he is who he says he is, the Lord. But our culture, because we don't like those options, because most people read the Bible and they go, wow, he can't be crazy. I mean, he says some really good things. And crazy people don't say really good things. Crazy people say crazy things. And people also read what he says, especially the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And they they read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the humble. Uh, They read, blessed are the peacemakers. They read all these things and they think, man, he's wise. He is, he's amazing. He can't possibly be a liar. 
And so our culture, it comes to these same texts and it says, he's a good teacher. He's a good teacher. He teaches the way of love and peace. He's a good teacher like Buddha is a good teacher. He's a good teacher like Muhammad is a good teacher. He's a good teacher, uh, you know, like Oprah, I guess, is a good teacher. I'm just saying what the world says. And then we have books like the Da Vinci Code come along and they perpetuate these ideas that Jesus was a good teacher, but there's these secret gospels that we found in 1945. And I'm letting you know, cause I'm Dan Brown and I've studied this stuff and I'm creating a fiction around it. And Jesus really wasn't who he said he was. He was actually different. The church has created this huge picture of this divine being, but that's not how it really went down. And you've been all deceived. In fact, Jesus isn't divine, but he's not a liar. That's not what Jesus said. You can't trust the New Testament. That's what our culture says. And I love what Winston Churchill says. I would love to try to, do, uh, to dismantle that lie right now. But Winston Churchill says, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets up and gets its pants on. And the reality is, If you believe that Jesus was just a good teacher who taught love and peace, you're deceived. The world has deceived you. Because we are going to see here right now who Jesus says he is. He tells us in response to these two theories. Because believe me, it wasn't lost on him when he realized, oh, my parents, my family thinks I'm a lunatic. Oh, the religious leaders think I'm lying. Listen to his response. It's in red in my Bible, which is really helpful, right? So Jesus called them over to him. That, that is the, the teachers of the law. And by the way, Jesus is a really good example for us in, in dealing with people we disagree with. He doesn't turn to his disciples and say, hey, I got something to tell you about the Pharisees. Hey, I want to tell you something. Those guys are morons. He goes to the morons and he talks to them. Instead of what psychologists call triangulation, where we talk to somebody else about the person that we should be talking to, Jesus goes and talks to the people he should be talking to. Jesus goes and talks to the people who have an issue with him. Jesus goes to the people who he has an issue with. We could learn something from that. He goes and he talks to them. Come here. He began to speak to them in parables. (laughs) Now, a parable means that Jesus is using a metaphor. He's using a metaphor. And he says this. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact... No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven all their sins and all the blasphemies they utter. And then we freak out. But whoever blesses, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And we usually read verse 29 and we go, "Ah!" and people call me and email me. What does this mean? We're freaking out. And we miss what Jesus said right before. Did you see what Jesus said right before? 
He's giving this metaphor and he says that Satan is the prince, the king of this world. Satan is running this world, says Jesus. And Satan has this world and in this world is like Satan's castle. It's his fortress. It's his stronghold. And inside of his castle are many prisoners. And you can't go and rescue the prisoners without first defeating the strong man, without first binding the strong man. Did you see that in there? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying a general of the U.S. Army wouldn't attack another battalion, another general of the U.S. Army. That's dumb. If I'm a general in Satan's army, why would I be attacking Satan? But you have understood correctly, he's a general. (laughs) Jesus is the general. And he has come, he says, he implies in this passage, he is stronger than the strong man. I have come to bind the strong man. I am mightier than he is. That's what Jesus says in this passage. I mean, that's what 28 says. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven all their sins. Who has the power to forgive sins? You see, that was an issue that showed up earlier in Mark's gospel. The Pharisee said, who has the power to forgive sins? This man is blaspheming against God. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says to demonstrate to you that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. I will tell this man, rise up and walk. The man gets up and walks. He's already established. Jesus has already established earlier in this book that he has the authority to forgive sins. If anybody can say all sins will be forgiven and actually know it's true. It's Jesus. He says all sins will be forgiven. But then he follows that up really quickly, doesn't he? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Sounds like a contradiction. But what Jesus is doing here is he is saying that the job of the Holy Spirit, the job of the Holy Spirit is to testify to me, to Jesus, that he is stronger than the strong man. The job of the Holy Spirit is to is to convict people that Jesus is the mighty one, that he is not a lunatic, that he is not a liar, that he is the Lord. And that forgiveness is extended to anyone and everyone who accepts him and believes in him and trusts in him as Lord. But the one thing that cannot be forgiven is when we resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we go, oh, he's not stronger than the strong man. (laughs) Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's a teacher of love and peace. If you accept one of those three, then verse 29 applies to you. That that sin cannot be forgiven. That you must accept Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus is. That He is the Lord. He is stronger than the strong man. This is really good news. You see, Mark began his book by saying, The beginning of the gospel 
the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is good news. It is the best news, but we don't always see it that way because we see many things that are to the contrary of this good news in our own community. We see young men and women struck down with horrible diseases that lead to death and end in death. We see in just the last few months, many children in our community who have died. We see diseases and we hear regularly about somebody who just was diagnosed. And beyond our own town, we see regularly how this world seems to just be spiraling out of control. And there's so much aligned against simple, basic faith, isn't there? I mean, there's so much in this world that makes us think this place is a mess and it's evil. And there's a strong man in charge. But the gospel says. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. You see, his disciples and his mother, Mary. They watched Jesus go to Jerusalem and all of their expectations were that when the Messiah came, he would go to Jerusalem to sit upon a throne. He would show up with a sword and he would liberate the people Israel and he would drive all the evil people and all the bad people away and he would kill them and there would be captives and Israel would win the day. But when Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem, his disciples knew what were coming. And he actually was told by his disciples, don't go. Because you don't have the army. You don't have the sword. You are going to die if you go to Jerusalem. And Jesus was so intent on going to Jerusalem and dying in Jerusalem that he even told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. This is what the Messiah came for. You see, I'm going to conquer evil and hatred and the strong man, not with a sword, but with a cross. Because you see the dilemma is God fights and destroys evil everywhere. But the problem is evil is in us. So how can God fight and destroy evil everywhere it is without destroying us? How can he destroy evil while saving us? And the answer was the cross. He gave up his life. He came, he gave his life as a ransom, as an atoning sacrifice for us. Otherwise, he would have to destroy us. And instead of us being destroyed, the son of man, the son of God was destroyed. The amazing thing was. Through his death, he defeated death. Because he rose from the dead. This is the great mystery of our faith. Jesus is greater than the strong man of death. And it was only by his death and his resurrection that he could demonstrate that he could show he was stronger than death. See, the amazing thing about the gospel is in our weakness, we are strong. In our death, 
we have life. Jesus shows us this. He proclaimed it all the way back in Mark 3. Well, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. (laughs) I've been there. Mom's looking for me. It was usually when I was late for piano. (laughs) Then he looked at those, or excuse me, Who are my mother and my brothers? You start thinking, maybe this insanity thing applies to him. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. See, Jesus is redefining family. Jesus says that if you follow me, you might have relatives that go, He's insane. She's nuts. And some of you have experienced that. And there has been a cost for you in coming to church and giving your life to Christ and becoming his disciple. And don't underestimate the reality that Jesus knows what you're experiencing because his own mom, who Gabriel, an angel, actually told her. She even thought, this kid must be outside his mind. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him as Messiah until after he rose again from the dead. Jesus' mother struggled with faith in him. And if you have had to let go of family, let go of friends, because they don't follow Christ and they don't understand, you're in good company. Because long before you had to pay that price, Jesus himself paid that price. Jesus was rejected and despised. Jesus was misunderstood. And yet, because of him and his rejection and misunderstanding of him, we can be adopted sons and daughters of his. That's what Jesus' mom had to experience. She had to go from being the mother of the Son of God to being a child of the Son of God. And you and I can experience being children of the Son of God. One last thing. Tim Keller, I love his preaching, and he has this excellent quote that I wanted to share with you today. Several excellent excellent quotes. And, And he says this. It should be on the screen eventually. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Some of us think that. We think if I am good enough, God will accept me. And that's what religion says. Religion teaches that, but the gospel is, I'm accepted through what Jesus Christ has done. Therefore, I obey. You see, the way you're accepted by Jesus Christ is through what he's done. He has, he has bound the strong man for you. He has freed you if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller also says this. Religion 
says that Jesus is a teacher. Religion is, oh, because I follow Jesus' teaching, God has to bless me. The gospel is, Jesus is the Savior, is the Mighty One. Only because of what He has done am I saved by grace. It's a very small difference. But it's a huge difference. It's a very small distinction, but it makes all the difference. Do you come here in order to be accepted by God? Do you do your works of righteousness? Do you, do you pay your taxes? Are you nice to your kids? Do you try to love your wife, your husband? Do you try to be a good, upstanding citizen so that God will accept you? Or do you know that none of that is helpful? <laughs> that none of that makes you right with God? That God looks like that and goes, please, I know better atheists than you. I mean, do you understand that? Do you understand that it's only by faith in what Christ has done that he defeated the strong man, that we are saved? And that because of that, we obey? You know, next week we'll see Mary standing at the foot of the cross. And we'll see that I, I like to imagine that she started to figure it out. But my guess is that for a three-year period, (laughs) she was confused. She was lost. She didn't know what was going on with that boy. But she started to get it towards the end. My prayer is that even if you've been here for three years or longer than three years, and you're still wrestling with, am I good enough? Have I done too much of bad stuff for God to love me? I hope that you will hear, perhaps today for the first time, God loves you. He accepts you as you are. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. And it is because of the work of Christ that you are saved. If you place your faith in him, you'll never be good enough. Christ is good enough. Place your faith in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this passage of Scripture. It's great. I love it. May we understand that to reject you, to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit to you, is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. I trust the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, in our hearts, in our midst. I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that right now they would give their life to you and follow you. Father, help us. Those of us who've been walking with you for a long time, and those perhaps even for a mere matter of moments, help us to continue in that long path of obedience. Not because of what our understanding is about how you accept us, but because we are accepted, we want to please you. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Only he can. 
You'll never measure up. But Christ measures up and gives it to us. Trust him. Amen.